welcome back to It's Technically Romance, where we take a look at Hallmark movies from our different perspectives, mine being the hopeless romantic. And mine being the cynical cinephile. I am Stephanie. And I'm Hamilton. And, oh my gosh, we have a special bonus episode for you guys this week. An interview that we were very excited about. This one is for all of you writers out there, lovers of these scripts. Script writing is one of my favorite aspects of these films, Next to Lighting. So getting a chance to talk to a writer is is always a treat for us. Yes. And uh, today we have screenwriter Sarah Montana, who we've talked about quite a bit in the podcast. Mm -hmm. She's written some of our favorites like Love to the Rescue and New Year's Resolution. And so this interview was so fun to do, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Let's get started. Hello. Hi, how's it going? It is going well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh my gosh. We are so excited to have you. You've quickly become one of our favorite Hallmark writers. That's so nice. You guys are so nice. (laughs) And so just, you know, for those that don't know, and listeners, like, tell us a little about your journey with writing and how you got started. Uh, And did you have like that aha moment of when you knew like, this is what I want to do? Yeah. um, So growing up, I was, um, I was, I did a lot of singing and I weirdly on the side, not very publicly did a lot of writing and I ran a drama club for kids. So starting in seventh grade, I started running this uh, program for fifth graders where we would condense a shaker play and do it. And I would write a musical for them. And it was this weird nerdy side hobbit that my friends didn't know that I did um, all through middle school and high school. And then I went to college for opera. I went to grad school for opera. I sang opera and music theater for a while. And between shows, I was still writing. And I realized that um, I was waiting to get off stage so that I could go back to the page. And I was like, oh no, I think I'm doing the wrong thing. (laughs) I think I picked the wrong side of the business. Um, And so that was kind of a wake up call. And I actually, my husband was also a singer and we went on honeymoon and he had been doing a slew of shows too. Like he was sending me pictures from backstage in the Wizard of Oz as a flying monkey and as one of the yo-yo guards. And I was very nervous on honeymoon. I was like, I know we just went to grad school and we have these careers, but I think I want to write. And he was like, that's great. I never want to sing again. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) so we both kind of like we're like ta-da um and I then got a job actually ghostwriting for um celebrities and for you know chefs and doctors and that kind of thing helping them write their books wow. and um and mostly book proposals and I started working on a play while I was doing that and um and I had other odd jobs and then eventually that play won an award and my producer from that play connected me with a mutual contact at Hallmark and was like, you should really read this and you should hire Sarah. And I was like, are you sure it's a murder play? I don't think that's like what Hallmark is looking for at all. Um, it was very dark play. And, um, and she, the Hallmark producer was a little skeptical and we met up her, she, Ashley Squires, who I just adore now is one of my favorite humans in the world. And, uh, and she was like, okay, this is how it works. I'll give you the rundown. And wasn't really sure she wanted to hire me. And I sent her 10 pitches and she wrote me back and she was like, 
I would make all of these. Um, <laughs> she, was like, she was like, and she told me a year later, she was like, I really didn't want to hire you because I don't like to be told what to do. Like she doesn't like when people give recommendations like that. Um, or she, she likes getting recommendations. I shouldn't say that, but she doesn't like when people are like, you have to do this. She's like, mm, we'll see. Um, and so I, then we picked two to work on together and we, uh, we, put them up on the pitch grid at Hallmark and they said yes to both of them. And then after that, it was like off to the races. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, we were going to ask how you got started with Hallmark, but you kind of already answered that your first screenplay was love to the rescue. Um, so they had contacted you before about it. You hadn't like, or you had written that first and then brought it to them. So they have a Hallmark has an interesting process compared to the rest of the industry. Um, I hope I'm not like giving away trade secrets, but I don't think I am actually. It makes their job easier. Um, uh, so often you don't go to them with a fully completed script. You don't do a spec script like you do in the rest of like in the rest of the industry. You're actually coming to them with an idea that's a pitch that's really only a couple paragraphs long, um, and then they have a big pitch grid where all of the pitches go and the executives decide which pitches they want to say, yes, let's, let's take this to the next phase. And if you make it through that phase, then you do an outline for them, a story treatment. And that's like 10 to 15 pages. And then once you've said, this is everything that's going to happen and we're agreed on all the plot points and we like the character arcs, then you might get greenlit to go to, uh, to draft and to write an actual script. Um, which it's a very different process, but it's kind of nice because then all the expectations are managed all the way through. Yeah, I, I could see that being a little bit easier for the for the writer too. You're not initially invested in the script that you put years of your life in, you know, and you're just almost like flying by, you know, like with the pitch and then into that. Yeah, and they're, they, I mean, you guys know, like Hallmark is such a specific brand and they know what they want and they know what their audience wants. Yeah. And so instead of writing a script that maybe misses the mark because of a couple of things that could have really easily been addressed at the beginning, then you don't have to, because you know, as a writer, it's like, they can give you a note that seems really small, but once you pull that thread, the whole sweater can unravel. Yeah. You're like, oh, actually, if she doesn't have a grandma, then this whole plot point suddenly ceases to make sense. Um, and so uh, it's nice to actually, from the beginning, have them go, oh, actually, uh, we don't do tropical Christmas or, you know, like whatever rules oh. they have. <laughs> I saw like, no, I mean, they don't I, do tropical Christmas. Well, no, it's just, it's just, it's just really fascinating to me because that way, that's how it, it, I guess it fits into the brand so well, right from the start like that. Okay. That, that answers a question of mine. Like I'm wondering how these movies are able to just have this, this formula and just execute so perfectly each time. And I bet you that's, that's a large part of it. It's a huge part of, I think, quality control. I think mm. it's really smart because it does actually take care of your writers really well. Like if you know that it's not, if you, if you just get a script, have a script you've been working on for years and then it gets rejected immediately you're questioning your ability and your craft, right? Mm. But instead it's like, actually, no, it's that we have to do certain things and you just didn't include those things or you made jokes that we don't make. Like you'll notice that Hallmark, and this is changing a little bit, but uh, one of the biggest adjustments for me is that 90% of my humor was referential and you can't really make references in uh, to pop culture in Hallmark movies because they want them to feel timeless and they don't want to alienate huge mm. portions of the audience who are like, who's Lady Gaga, you know? And so learning to work with, it was actually a nice writing challenge because if I had not known that going into the process, I would have 
peppered a script with all kinds of jokes like that and it would not have made it through the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a nice challenge as a writer because you're like, oh, right, I can't rely on humor tropes that most other places lean on. So how do I actually think about what a joke means and what's funny and like the real center craft of a, an unexpected left turn or banter or, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, but then we alienate all of those Lady Gaga fans. So. I know. Well. <laughs> I'm with them. So, you know, um, would you mind walking us through kind of a, a typical day for a screenwriter, like what your process is? Yeah. I mean, I cannot hope to speak for all screenwriters. And they're probably not nearly <laughs> yeah, just you, just, just you. <laughs> we're not a monolith. Um, I'm sure people hear this and go, wow, I could never do that. Um, So I usually wake up and have, I mean, my husband and I do breakfast. He works in Manhattan and, um, I, in a pre-COVID world, actually, what I would do is I would walk him to the ferry, which is about a mile away. And then on my walk back, that's, I'm weird in that I do most of my writing in my head and then I go to the page and go crazy. Um, So things kind of have to germinate for a while. So I'll go for these really long walks and let everything marinate. Um, I actually, when I first wake up every day, I write three pages stream of consciousness and do a brain dump. Um, but usually on that walk, I'll take a journal with me. This is like at the beginning of a, of a script. And I have to spend a lot of time with the characters and journaling with the characters and getting to know them. And I, that sounds very woo woo, but I just ask a lot of questions like with Love to the Rescue with Kate and Eric, I would ask like, who was their first crush? Uh, when was the first time they were rejected? Um, what was the most embarrassing thing that happened to them in elementary school? Like these very specific questions that will in no way work their way into the script, but I have to know them well enough that uh, I will know how they will react in any possible situation. And um, wow. yeah, I know that's a very strange, and it's not what everybody does. Uh, but the reason for that for me with Hallmark especially is that they may come back and I may get a note that says, you know what, we actually can't for location secure a mall, for example. And you may have to change a really crucial plot point. And the better I know those characters, the more easily I can say, well, if I have to throw them into a new situation, how would their dialogue change? How would they respond? What would their reaction to this thing be? Does that make any sense? Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. No, I love that. I haven't heard that before. No, and I guess that's how they can be so fleshed out because they have this sort of backstory that you've kind of written out in in your mind, basically. Yeah, and and it has to be flexible sometimes. Sometimes Hallmark will give you a note and you're like, and you have this invisible backstory um, that they don't know about. But in my head, I'm like, oh, I have to kill one of their siblings. They're now an only (laughs) child, you know, because of some thing that they want to change and that's okay. Um, but, But it helps the more you have, as long as, uh, the uh, the other piece of the process is you cannot be overly precious. You really do have to be willing to quote unquote kill your darlings, um, which I actually don't really believe in. I put the darlings in a drawer and let them live, you know, subterranean. Uh, <laughs> they, they have a whole happy mole people community down there. Where I'm like, <laughs> someday you may see the sun again, but but you do have to be very like it, you have to be very good about if they have a note coming back and saying, okay, here's here's possible solutions to this thing. Like they can you know, they can be resistant to commitment because their parents got divorced or it can be a breakup last year. Which option do you like more? And sometimes uh, it's funny, Ashley used to be like, well, they both sound good. What do you want? And I'd be like, you're asking me if I want to go on a walk through the woods or a walk down by the beach. I enjoy this. (laughs) So it's really, what do you think works better in this situation? Yeah, no, that makes 
complete sense though, because one of the things that we love so much about your movies are your characters. They're so well-established, they're so believable, and they have just like these authentic conversations that just feel so real. So that it pretty much explains because you are having those conversations with them that you know them so well. And so I was curious if you had any like favorite characters in films that you've loved that you sort of like draw inspiration from. I I have this thing that I do. Um, First of all, thank you. That's so nice. Like that's like my number one thing that I care about is like, do these feel like real people and not tropes? You know, because it is a formula and we love the formula, but we want to feel like real people are populating it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny that you say that because I use that every time that I go to create new characters and it's not copying the characters, but it's thinking about like, like love to the rescue. I thought a lot about, I think a lot about relationship dynamics between my favorite couples on screen. And so it's not their personalities, but what is it that I like about the way they play tennis and bounce the ball back and forth between them? Mm-hmm. And, um, so like love to the rescue, I was on a parks and rec binge and I was like, I really like the dynamic between Leslie and Ben. I really like that. He's sometimes taken on this whirlwind that he otherwise would have a much more static existence and she's sort of whipping him through this thing and with uh there was another one I did that had that uh didn't end up going where I was thinking about pride and prejudice and not in the typical surface way but like really what is the flaw in these two people and why do these two people why do Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy really need each other why would they have not been as self-actualized without the other one um so I I think about that a lot with I mean I'm a big sitcom person. I love pretty much anything Michael Schur's ever done. So that's a big, that's a big thing. Uh, with New Year's resolution, I thought a lot about Nick and uh, Nick and Jess Day from New Girl, but reversing <laughs> that dynamic gender-wise, so that um, you know, if you had a Jessica Day who was a guy who was very enthusiastic and said yes to everything, and there was a girl who was a little more of a Nick Miller, a little more curmudgeonly, what would that be like? I knew I loved you. I mean, this made sense. Like I see your characters and I'm like, I know she's watching Parks and Rec and New Girl, like obviously. Yeah. Oh yeah. And there's some dark stuff too, but that doesn't help with Hallmark. Quite so <laughs> you know? Sometimes, sometimes we like a little, we like our characters to have depth, you know? Yeah. yeah this one's a little more of a Walt and Jesse from Breaking Bad. We want to see that Hallmark movie. <laughs> Uh, one of my sort of favorite dynamics uh, was in Love to the Rescue between Kate and Liam, you know, her ex-husband. I, I just I just have to give you props for that. That was just so realistic. And it's something we don't really see, you know, the ex-husband being such a huge part. And just thank you for doing that. And thank you for having that in there. Thank you so much. I actually did a screening recently and I got a lot of pushback from the audience on that one. Really? Um, it was split 50-50. There were people who really loved it. And then there were people who were like, I can't imagine ever not wanting to kill my ex. <laughs> <laughs> and the the truth is it was based on real couples. I think it's very different when I had teenage parents and they didn't get divorced, but I, but I was always sort of enamored of how did they make this work when most teenage couples don't end up staying together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, and there were other people in my family who got married really young. And it's always this question of like, what if somebody had always been your family but they weren't the right partner for you at the end of the day. And how would you actually disentangle that thing? And should you disentangle it entirely just because it's no longer romantic or they're no longer the right partner for you in day-to-day life? So it was fun to actually, I was thrilled that Hallmark was 
okay with showing that because yeah. it's not um it's not without its contentious detractors <laughs> so. no and i think that's why it stood out to us because we don't see that a lot but it was so mature and like such a great relationship to see on on, on tv well it was refreshing you know that's, that's one of the, the things was that's just we we do love the tropes you know obviously but when you have just that little that little sprinkle of something refreshing something new it just, I think it elevates it just a little bit more. It's nice too to play, I think, with the idea that if we're going to have, like, obviously most of this is aspirational romance. Mm. Um, you know, there are things that if I told my, you know, the start of my marriage, it would not be Hallmark appropriate in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, it would be a little more scandalous. But if we're going to do aspirational, we shouldn't just do that with the relationships that are um, traditionally acceptable. It should be aspirational in ones that are like less conventional because families take a lot of different forms these days. I mean, I have a blended family um, because my mother passed away like 12 years ago and our blended family has been beautiful and it doesn't really follow any of the horrible step family tropes. Uh, so the more you can show that, I think um, you're A, reaffirming people whose existence don't fit the um, society's model of what family looks like or romance looks like, but B, you're also showing other people what's possible if they do have their own bumps in the road or life takes a different turn than what they expect. Absolutely. And I had uh, heard in one of your interviews that those are your favorite Hallmark movies, the ones that kind of push the envelope a little yes. bit, which are our favorites also, <laughs> obviously. So how do you do that? How do you balance that of keeping true to the format, but sort of tiptoeing off of it a little bit? It's been, um, you know, it's funny. I think that Hallmark is more receptive to that across the board, which makes it, um, which makes my job a lot easier. But I think it's about being really specific about what you're going to push the envelope on and not doing it across the board and understanding where they're coming from. Um, so like with Love to the Rescue, the thing that we were really gonna push for was uh, was that, that was the, the relationship between Kate and Liam. In New Year's Resolution, there were a couple of things that we pushed for that were unconventional, like the fact that they're not um, spending the whole movie trying to figure out whether or not they like each other. They know they like each other right from the jump and then there are actual obstacles that might break them apart. That's not usually the formula that they do, but I thought it would be fun to see that on screen. And even some of the stuff about um, it was a little wild to them. Usually Hallmark, ha you have one friend. <laughs> you get to have one friend. Yeah. You don't have a friend group like, uh, like Amy's character did in that movie. And that was something that I pushed for because she's a little bit younger as a protagonist. She's turning 30. And that is the time in your life where you usually have a friend group. You're not settled. You don't have just like your one confidant or you're not necessarily relying on your uh, family as much. And so that that felt important to, to show. I So I think you pick one thing and you're aware of what battles are, are gonna go, you know, are what hills to die on essentially and what hills not to. Um, and it's not because they're not receptive or they're not open, but you can't completely reinvent the wheel every time or else people be, will be like, wait, I tuned in for a Hallmark movie and I got a Netflix movie. That's not what I was looking for, yeah. you know? Yeah, and it's, it's sort of interesting to me, you mentioned Netflix and, you know, I, I like to talk about this, how they've tried to sort of hone in on that Hallmark formula, but they just, they just can't, can't get that, you know? Yeah, it's a different, uh, you know, and, and not to speak like, 
badly of them, like, you know, of course, Netflix, hi, please hire me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's a different, um, streaming is so fascinating because there are no rules. You can essentially create whatever. And it's been interesting to watch over time the streaming go from this like broad playground where any, where any kind of content can live to each streaming platform trying to sort of establish a brand mm-hmm. around that. And Netflix has been particularly diverse in terms of all the different, different things they're willing to try. Like it feels like Amazon Prime really was specific about like, yeah, we're only going for this kind of content and Hulu kind of did the same thing. Um, but it's been fascinating to watch what their spin on it is and also what they're, they want to try that you, that Hallmark has said, no, we don't want to, you know, we're not interested in doing that kind of thing. It's funny. There are people in my life who confuse Lifetime and Hallmark all the time. And mm-hmm. I'm like, they could, they may both be TV movies, but they couldn't be more different. Like <laughs> nobody's getting murdered in a Hallmark movie. It's like not going to happen. <laughs> No, yeah, Lifetime. I mean, they do have some good Christmas ones that are fun, but yeah, they yeah. they have that other side as well. <laughs> the Hallmark does not. So you have worked with some of the same people in Hallmark now. We we've had Leslie Dimitriadis on the podcast, who's wonderful. Yeah, and you've worked you've worked with Nikki twice um, and Michael Rady and three times. Yes. Um. So how important is that to you to have people that you know that you can trust that can deliver the script in the way that you imagined? It completely transforms the process. You know, I was really spoiled with Love to the Rescue um, because it was the first screenplay I'd ever written. And I, you know, it felt like for a while you feel like you're a child playing dolls in your living room when you're creating it. Like it's just you with these voices in your head and going to your computer and, you know, saying things out loud to yourself and maybe having your poor husband and best friend read through everything in monotone. And then you get to set and especially like Nikki and Michael are just electric. Like they took what I had and they elevated it to this level that I was like, oh, this is so much better than I could have possibly imagined or could have hoped for. Um, and the, you know, the big thing with Nikki and Michael is, uh, is that they're just really wonderful people. I was lucky to get to go to set then and actually get to connect with them and talk to them. And it made doing two turtle doves so much easier because I also then knew their voices and we knew going in that they were probably who we were going to want to cast for that because the chemistry had just been so great on Love to the Rescue and we were, and Leslie was the one who had come up with the premise for that story um, and had the script and she was, and she and Ashley were like, you know, we just want you, can you take this? Can you, can we get it to the finish line in time? And can you like do some revisions on it? And um, I just like, there's something about having a team of people that you really trust and that you know how the other people work and what their strengths are and what kinds of things really light them up creatively that makes the process feel safer to experiment within. And that's been true with some other teams that I've worked with too. And there's some other actresses that I really love. Um, but that first experience, those experiences with Nikki and Michael, I was like, I felt like I made friends for life. And Leslie, of course, and Ashley, we just called it the dream team for a while. Like. Oh, <laughs> And Brett Takashita, I mean, he was on Love to the Rescue and on Two Turtle Doves with me. And he was just like, he's a dream to work with. I'm doing another movie with him now. And he just, he is the most positive person I've ever met, but he also knows how to give these incisive and very um, specific notes that make you go, oh, right. Like this person, I thought I could just sort of squeeze that or get that by, but nothing really gets by him if it doesn't make sense or if it doesn't feel like a natural thing for a human to do. Uh, which is incredibly helpful. So, I mean, you get to actually be on set then. That's that's um, wild. 
only for that one and only because Ashley Squires is uh, amazing, but she, they were having a hard time casting the intern in that movie. I had written this intern, Greg, uh, for Nikki's firm. And she was like, okay, I am getting a lot of submissions for this. And everybody, you know, it's only like two lines and everybody was really going for it on those two lines. And I was like, no, it should just be offhand. It should be very like simple like this. And she was like, do you just want to do it? Like just submit. And we'll see, you know, I can't promise anything, but just submit. And so I submitted and she was like, great, you're cast. And so I went down and got to be on set with them. And I spent a couple of days just getting to hang out on set and get to meet uh, Nikki and Michael and Leslie, because Leslie was shadowing uh, Steven for the movie so that she could get the lay of the land at Hallmark. And um, I mean, I just like fell in love with Nikki immediately. Like she just is this incredible person. Um, and we have all this shared background and it really was this thing of like, oh, I would write anything for you. What do you want? <laughs> um, and, uh, but it was amazing to get to see what their process is like. And even though it was sort of a way around what normally happens, I can't imagine writing these other movies without being on set and seeing the process. Yeah. And they only get three weeks to film these movies. And when you understand that and you understand how, if, when you get to see people securing locations and then, you know, how costumes work and all of the things, it completely changes the writing process because now you're trying to think about what will make their lives easier, what's actually attainable, what will actually translate onto screen and what won't, um, because you've talked to the props guy who comes by and is like, if you ever make me fill water balloons with paint again, <laughs> I will end you. <laughs> I was like, cool, got it. Yeah, <laughs> Well, no, it definitely changes just the way we even watch these movies now, like talking to people behind the scenes, like costume and the writers and directors, like it's just amazing the work and care that goes into these movies. It's pretty, it's pretty phenomenal. And you guys are so astute. Like I like listening to the podcast in the past, there have been things that you've pointed out and I totally can't confirm what is and what isn't. You've been like, I wonder if what happened here is this. And I'm like, they're geniuses. <laughs> exactly what happened in this situation. <laughs> we do go a little further than most people. We think about, we love the details. Uh. There's all kinds of things where I'm like, yeah, or it'll be like so close. I feel like I'm the killer in a like murder mystery. And I'm like, they're so close to figuring it out. Like piecing together exactly what happened. Why production oh. had to do this thing or like, like I'm like, they don't know it was an ice skating rink. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um. I have, I don't, if you've listened to the podcast, you know, I have a certain, um, I guess, tick with the uh, late act conflict um, yes. that happens in these films. Uh, how do you, how do you handle that? What do you think about the late act conflict? I think that, um, I think that this, that what determines the success of a late act conflict, and of course, this is according to me. So if you don't <laughs> like my movies, late act conflicts, then I'm not the to address this um but I think that for me it has to be uh it doesn't work when it's purely external when it feels like a thing that is forced or like fate is just coming in to drive these people apart for no reason like I I know that the fandom um rightfully criticizes a lot of you know interrupted or missed kisses or that kind of thing and uh to me the key is that you have to know from the beginning what your character's biggest internal flaw is. And that conflict has to be created in a way that exacerbates that thing, that puts them from a place of trusting into a complete fear state. And is like, so that they're activated by that thing and they're not going to be acting as the, their best selves in whatever that situation would be. Um, if you can't do that, then it's gonna feel like 
you're going to get annoyed as an audience member. You're going to be like, this is not a thing to fight about. This is not a thing that should be putting this relationship in jeopardy. And now instead of rooting for you, I'm irritated with you that you couldn't be a grown up in this yeah. situation. That's it. All right. Thank you. you. You've solved it for me. It's, it's, it's the fate. It's the fate aspect coming in and okay. Thank yeah. You. And sometimes like one of the things I think about a lot when I'm writing something is choices are rarely binary. And so a lot of times when it's like, oh, does she choose the job in the big city or the guy at home? If I were in that situation, I would not feel like it was a choice between those two things. It, it would right. be whatever your Hallmark viewer is thinking too. Well, well, why doesn't he move? Or well, why doesn't she telecommute? Or why, don't, why doesn't she renegotiate something here? Yeah. And so there has to be an internal thing that is making, either the, the obstacle has to be that they're short-sighted and they're not thinking clearly enough, which can happen sometimes where you right. realize that this character is a black and white thinker and they're very by the book and they need to learn to be more creative. But ultimately, I think it is about that hero's journey. I'm going to get very crafty for a second. Sorry. Oh, um, please, please. <laughs> it is that I always think about like each individual character has to be on a hero's journey, even if they're not the protagonists that we're tracking. Uh, and side characters, it's a little bit different. But for those two leads, they both have to come into this experience. And the question for me is always, what were they lacking before this encounter with this person that otherwise would have held them up for the rest of their life? It's that idea of like, what is the cave they have to go into that is uncomfortable for them? And what is the treasure that they're bringing back to heal the kingdom in that very classic like Joseph Campbell mm -hmm. cycle? And I think that's true in relationships in the real world. I used to write for this doctor, uh, Dr. Laura Berman, and she writes all these sex therapy books and relationship books. And she talked a lot about how there was all this uh, psychological uh, research around the fact that people are drawn to people with the exact opposite baggage that they have. That the person that you're looking for is always going to have baggage. They're not going to be perfect. But if you look at for someone whose baggage is complementary to yours, if their their hang up is actually something you're really great at, and what you're great at actually complements their thing, or in some way it's healing to be around someone who has the opposite problem that you do. Um, that you come out of that thing a little more self-actualized and having to access parts of yourself that you've either cut off or labeled as bad or for whatever reason, your culture, your your family unit said, um, this thing isn't valuable to society in the world and it's bad and wrong. Often we're attracted to people who have embraced that part in themselves and help us to integrate that. And so when I think about that conflict, it's always, what is this person's dark night of the soul? What is the thing that they won't be able to go through life without? Uh, or they could, but it would be more difficult that they specifically need this person to bring out of them. And how is this moment the uh, thing that makes them realize that they have to do it and that they've like really fumbled the bag up until this moment by not having that thing? How does it blow this situation up? Oh, man. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have brought Campbell's Hero's Journey to Hallmark and I'm so excited. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you, you can bring it to, I think you have to bring it to everything, right? Like that's kind of the fun of this is there's no, there's no such thing as something that you can just, you can't, I'm going to like cuss a little bit. You can't have fast craft in anything. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if it's Hallmark or if it's Disney or if it's a, you know, like short little thing on the internet, like craft is craft. So, I mean, when you say craft is craft, where are you, are you self-taught then? Like, did you, did you do yeah. any sort of like schooling or, or classes or I mean I did not go to um so I did not I didn't do any um I guess what we would say formal education around mm. this so I did my my undergrad was in I got a bachelor of music theater so very useful um, but it is actually actually I, I'm gonna circle back and say something that um so and then my master's is, is in opera mm. 
And the reason, um, this is gonna get dark for a second, but I, so my senior year of college, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, my mother and brother were actually killed. And I found that the most healing thing for me was to immerse myself in opera because they're these very archetypal characters. They totally all, I mean, all of those things follow that Joseph Campbell hero's journey, um, you know, and they're also characters who were living these extremely large plots and they were the only characters whose lives seemed as dramatic as mine did at the time. I'm inherently not a very dramatic person. I'm like a delayed processor. So it was nice to have these characters where you could absolutely just literally, uh, you know, singing is sustained screaming. So you could just lose yourself in these archetypal characters. And you, in order to character study those, you start to map out all of these things that Campbell talks about and that you see in, um, in a lot of craft books. And because I was so drawn to those characters, I wasn't, um, I, I felt a little alienated in opera at school because most of them are all thinking technique, technique, technique about the singing. And I found myself really wondering why do these stories still resonate? Like, why am I still finding so much catharsis in Turandot a century and a half later, or um, or even things from the Baroque era. Like why why is this still resonating with me? And why does Shakespeare and what are the patterns and stories that are like that are capturing something that translates every century of the human experience? And um, so I guess the short answer is that I'm a nerd and I just started reading a ton. I loved and and it was also um, integral to me healing the trauma of losing my mom and brother. I found that. Um, some of the archetypal psychology stuff. And there's a lot of books that sort of, uh, when people ask for craft books about like, why are, your why are your characters like this? I often give them psychology books because I find that that's the easiest way to really understand a character. And some of whether or not it's the best, you know, therapy, um, there are a lot of books by like Jungian uh, psychologists and by some archetypal psychologists that I am like, this was okay helping me heal, but it's been really helpful to my writing because they're always thinking about like, what does the mother trope mean? Or here's like, you know, the Greek goddesses and how they each re reflects an aspect of femininity, that kind of thing. Yeah, I just started devouring all these books to both heal myself and just out of interest. And it kind of took on a life of its own. I know it's very, it's not conventional and I'm sure there are like, there are all kinds of things that I would have strongly benefited from an MFA program. I'm sure that's true, but uh, too late. We're going to figure it out. As we go. <laughs> no, I think you're doing okay for yourself. <laughs> I think I think it's worked out very well for you. <laughs> that's very nice. <laughs> yes, because I mean, and we can like tell now, you know, because we've seen so many Hallmark movies and that's where you're a favorite of ours just because we love seeing these movies that are a little bit different and everything were you a big fan of hallmark before did you watch a lot of hallmark do you have a favorite hallmark movie so i this is like a huge betrayal but i actually hadn't seen that many hallmark movies before i started writing them and that i know is is crazy i'm i adore them and i and am obsessed with them now but at, you know that was part of why ashley squires was okay with hiring me she was like i actually want you to come in not knowing this very well, because then I can, instead of you having a lot of ideas about how this is going to go, I can help shape, you know, mm. I, and I can also, she wanted somebody who was going to push the envelope and not, I, I find myself actually sometimes getting trapped now where I'm working on a script right now. And my producer has to keep going, no, you can break the rules. It's okay. <laughs> because now I'm so immersed that I am like, oh no, they'll never say yes to this. And it's like, no, they will. Like you have to huh. just, just do your thing, you know? But yeah, I like, I'm very embarrassed to admit that I was new to, I came in through the writing, not through the watching. 
I mean, I had to drag him into it. Yeah. So he, you know, you don't see a lot of guys watching Hallmark, but he got sucked in. Yeah, and and now I just love him. I mean, because there there is just this technical quality to it. I mean, we kind of spoke to it before, but there's so much lo- love and care and craft that goes into these films, and it it resonates with me, you know, um, as a filmmaker when I when I see that myself. Yeah, and to me, it's amazing the what they're able to pull off technically on such a short timetable. Yeah. I don't think that timetable exists anywhere else in the industry. Um, I was talking to a, a writer director friend of mine who was visiting from LA and he was like, how long do they give you to write these things? And I was like, I mean, you know, for the first, he was like for the first draft. And I was like, well, we've done an outline, but uh, you know, like two to three weeks max. And he was just like, when I write something, I go away to the woods for a month, for months at a time. And I'm like, yeah, it's not like that with this. Um, but I also think it's very liberating in that sense because you don't have time to second guess yourself. You have to just dive all the way in. Um, and I think you see that with the way they light everything. I mean, the lighting's incredible. They're, they just, you have to find people who are willing to jump in with both feet and not mm-hmm. question themselves in order to pull it off. Well, it's especially with New Year's Resolution. I mean, the lighting in that film was probably some of my favorite lighting in any Hallmark film. Like it just, it blew me away, blew me away. I mean, Leslie is just like, she's just a genius and she pulls, she has a real a real knack for pulling together to just like very talented people who will add nuance to everything. Like every aspect of what she does is, is thought through all the way. And she's the kind of director who I've, I, she's the only director who has been on all of the creative calls that I've, that w- in the process of creating them, like writing the movie. Um, and she's that thoughtful about it. And which is why I love working with her. Like she is on every call, thinking about the character, wanting to know why I've made the decisions that I do did. And, you know, even from production calling me and saying like, okay, we have to change the small thing. Like she thinks through every aspect of it. And, and just like I do with my characters, there's no detail that doesn't mean something or, I mean, she's just like, She's going places, man. I look forward to her Oscar win when it rightfully happens. Yeah. Well, you are also going places as well. Speaking of details, like things that come to mind with some of your characters, because you said none of your details, like they mean something. Um, And I think I heard that you kind of base some of the characters maybe off of some of your friends. Some of the things that stick out is like the job that Michael Rady had and like loved the rescue. He was like a traffic coordinator or something like that. But then she like asked him what his dream job was. And it was like working with like- He was doing housing advocacy. Housing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just like so specific. And I think we talk about that in the podcast, but it's like, did you know someone that had that job? Like usually we see like the generic, like doctor or firefighter or something like that. Yeah, but these were just so specific. I can't ever, it can't ever be generic generic because I think what you do for a living informs your day-to-day life perspective so much. Even if you're not in the right job, it starts to seep into your, how you view the world. Mm-hmm. Um, like my husband, for example, um, he works for a property manager that rents luxury apartments and he's the on-site uh, leasing consultant. And um, he would come home and we're living in our Brooklyn apartment. And he'd be like, this place is a dump. It's horrible here. And I was just like, is it? Or are you in $8,000 a month apartments all day? And he's like, right. <laughs> you know? So I think about, I, I think some of it is, um, 
there, I definitely lift from a lot of my friends and family. And I'm also, um, on the flip side, uh, I also, if I know that a character needs to have this very specific job, because it will inform that it really is all about that, like act eight conflict that we were talking about. So I'm like, what job would in some ways, like heighten this quality in them and also be an obstacle. So like right now I'm working on one where we knew generically he needed to be a lawyer. And I had, and in my head, I'm like, okay, how do I get really specific about what kind of law he would practice that would inform his decisions and make him see the world this way? And like, why would he have gravitated toward that kind of law in the first place? And I've been borrowing a ton from my brother's going to law school as we speak. So that's Mm -hmm. been, you know, of course I'm going to hammer with, uh, if I only had Christmas, I interviewed like five different uh, publicists and was like, okay, well, tell me everything about your job. Um, but like the example you gave about Eric, I knew that he needed, the superhero thing was so crucial to his relationship with his son and this superhero complex and what that means about rigidity, but also, you know, not ever letting yourself fail, but also what it, the good side of that being that you do want to help people and that you do want to save people. And uh, if he was stuck in this very bureaucratic job, my mom was on the park authority board when I was growing up. So there was some understanding of the Department of Transportation and what that would be like and the red tape that he would be stuck in. Um, But then I also do have a friend who was finishing her doctorate in uh, urban planning and housing advocacy. So it was easy to go to her and be like, um, what would this be like? Who wants to do this? (laughs) What is Who are you? What is your life like? You know? It's not often that you hear when they're like, oh, what is your dream job? And then that, like when he came out with that, we were just like, wow. And it just makes it that much more believable. Yeah, it really I think does. it's it's definitely more believable than like a ballerina astronaut, you know, <laughs> but, but also I think people's dream jobs usually are a little more specific. And, you know, and my dad is funny when he saw Love to the Rescue, he was like not upset, but like very playfully upset. He was like, you stole my life. Um, because it's about a blended family and he's the, my dad was like the president of the PTA and all of those kinds of things. I was like, dad, you're also not this character at all. Like you are not, you have never laminated a thing in your life, (laughs) but it's fun. It's fun to, you know, you're always of course trying from real life, but hopefully not in a way that feels like you're plagiarizing the people that you love because that's not great. But I love that Kate was like a creative director for like an animation studio. Like that was so different to me. Totally have to give props to Ashley Squires on that one. Like I knew that I wanted her to have a creative job, but I knew that it couldn't be something, but I wanted something off the beaten path. And she was like, I've always wanted one of our characters to be an animator. And I was like, yes. I was like, I love that idea. Let's absolutely run with that. She So the, all props to Ashley Squires on that. She, Who did the animation? It for the movie. I think that so the um the production company that Hallmark worked with that, that is Stan Spry's company, the cartel. And um and they found an I think they found an animation studio in Georgia that did it. Oh wow. Um, but I could be wrong about that. It might have been in it might have been based somewhere else, but it was very strange to like have to come up with a movie within a movie. Um mm-hmm. and the funniest part about that is that uh because I had a friend who was who was also a screenwriter who watched it recently and was like what happened with this animated like thing in the middle of the thing? And I was like, here's the, the thing with Hallmark is that I had to give enough plot to the animated movie that you understood what was happening, but I couldn't give enough plot to the animated movie that Hallmark would start giving notes on the mini movie. Like, ah. because the, I started getting notes back about like well this, I'm confused about the frog moment with the fireflies and I was like oh my stars okay um <laughs> this is not the point this is going to be a blip in the movie and Ashley would come back with notes Ashley and Brett would be like 
all right, we got to make sure that, uh, that, that you got to give us less (laughs) more around this. And I was like, yeah, cool. Got it. Got it. The funniest thing that about that experience, I don't think I've ever told anybody this when you're sitting there as a writer, you have to write everything. Right. And so I knew that I had to have a marquee and with Hallmark, I can't just say a marquee with other titles. Um, but there had to be a marquee for the animation festival. So I had to name four other animated movies. <laughs> and I'm sitting at a table. I'd gone home and I'm working on Love to the Rescue. And I was I was visiting my family in Virginia. And my brother Connor was co-working too. And I like came up with three. And I was like, I'm stuck on the last one. I was like, Connor, I just need a name for an animated movie. And he was like, that's my horse. And I was like, that's my horse? I was like, what? He was like, what is the story of this movie? And he's just like, I don't know, but there's challenges and there's an old man. And at the end, he's like, that's my horse. (laughs) We like cried laughing and like did beat for beat this animated movie. And I put that's my horse in it. And I was like, I'm going to try, but I need you to know that there's no world in which Hallmark lets that, that's my horse through. And they just didn't care. And I show up in Savannah to film this stuff. And I look at the marquee of an actual theater where they've put all the titles up. And that's my horse is there in big letters. <laughs> and I like took a picture for Connor. And I was like, we did it. <laughs> that's my horse. We've made it. We've made it. Well, now you have to write. That's my that's horse. Not, that's, right. that's my horse. <laughs> I can't ever write that. Like that's oh, my man. horse. It's just like a parody Pixar short, man. Like just it's just feels with sway like swaying strings in the background do you have a favorite script of yours that you've written it's hard for me to divorce the experience from um they're each they're each really special in different ways um so I'm going to do the cop-out answer but what I'll tell you really quickly is like love to the rescue special because it was the first one and I got to be on set and it was just a magical experience two turtle doves is special to me because they like I knew that Ashley came to me because I had grief experience and there was a lot of really careful thought about how is this still a Christmas movie but how do we help people who may be struggling at this time of year and there's a lot in that movie that is what I wish somebody you know my family died six days before Christmas Christmas is a tough time of year for my family and it was it was nice to be able to hopefully without being too pedantic or prescriptive pack in some things I wish people had acknowledged about my experience at that time of year New Year's resolution is the most fun probably to write. And if I only had Christmas was this weird blessing that came out of nowhere where they came to me with a story that they really wanted to do. And it was why it was kind of a wild um, saving force as COVID is happening. And I am sequestered in my apartment and the world is falling apart every time you turn on the news to say, okay, I'm going to go back to Oz for a little bit and just try to bring people a tiny bit of joy in the midst of this chaos that there's something very special about that too and that experience so yeah we were curious about that movie how that came to be how the wizard of oz theme came to be with that script how that sort of like morphed together yeah it was not i didn't that is the only one that i've written that was not um a concept that i came up with you know myself it was I know you said it on the thing and I was like, I was like, she, she was like, it's interesting that it's a story by Jim Head. (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) But it's true. And I like, there was a, that was kind of a fun challenge for me. Like, can I still, you know, and, and like, 
there are places where I think I pulled it off and other places where I think it's, you know, like everything it's got, it's things that are more complex, but um, it was really fun to take somebody else's story. And they're like, this is the story. Uh, this is what we want to do. They want to do uh, something about the challenge of, can you take a movie and make it Christmas, make it Wizard of Oz yeah. and make it Romans <laughs> and also teach this bear to dance. <laughs> it's really fun. Um, and it, I know that it was a, a thing that, uh, that is Candace Cameron Bray's favorite movie of all time. Like she's in love with the Wizard of Oz. And so um, to get to bring, make somebody's dream project come to life and in the way that they want it to be. And she was involved in all those calls and was very specific about like what she wanted. Um, it was like, I, I was honored that they trusted me with something that was that precious to them. Um, and we had a blast doing it. Like they're really, really fun. Like Muse and that whole team was really fun to work with. Um, I'm doing another one with them now too. That's going to be a blast. Um, but it's, it was a very different process because I, it took me a little bit, it was, it was almost reverse engineering instead of creating a character, you're going like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Yeah. Um, it was like being in-laws instead of it being your siblings. You know what I okay. mean? Oh, I like that. Do you, I mean, having done both of those now, do you prefer one to the other now or? It's, you know, it's, there's something fun about both. It's kind of, it's hard to say. It's coming up with your own has its own pros and cons. On the one hand, you feel a lot more ownership of the thing. On the other hand, you feel a lot more ownership of the thing. And that comes with its own pressures too. And is it's it's more of an emotional roller coaster, I think. When you're re-engineering somebody else's idea, it feels a little more like playtime. And it feels a little more like solving a puzzle, which is really fun. Um, and it depends on the situation. The one last year was very complex. I've now, I've, the one I'm doing now with them, the concept is so brilliant, but so uh, simple that there's all this room to play. And because we did the work we did last year, I feel really safe and comfortable uh, exploring all of that with them. But I did eventually have to sit, like I'm working on this script right now. And I just had to be like, wait, I need a little more time because I'm going deeper into the characters and figuring out their whole thing. So it's a different process and I'm still getting a little more accustomed to it, but I, but I really enjoy it. It's fun to, um, you know, sometimes you want to be a chef and cook whatever you want. And sometimes it's fun to say like, what do you want me to cook you? And be like, okay, I've never made a pecking duck. Let's try that. <laughs> we, so we do this, uh, if you've listened to the podcast, our sort of rating is like, if you would rewatch a movie and we definitely feel like your movies have rewatch value. We've, we've watched Love to the Rescue multiple times. So New Year's resolution as well. Um, so do you have a favorite film that you love to like watch over and over again? I tend to, I mean, there are, there are tons of dramas that I absolutely love. Like I acknowledge the whole Oscar conceit that like dramas are usually these like chef's kiss film, but I tend to rewatch comedies more often. Yeah. And so there are some cult favorites from growing up, uh, but this is the sort of like off the beaten path one is that my friend group and I have this obsession with Hot Rod, uh, which is the Lonely Islands movie. And it's worked its way so deep into our friend circle that now we sing You're the Voice at every person's wedding who gets uh, married in the friend group. So that's deeply embarrassing, but also hilarious. They're going to be upset. They're going to hear this and be like embarrassing, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I love, I tend to rewatch Goofy, Absurdist. I mean, I grew up on like Anchorman and I grew up on a lot of Mel Brooks and, you know, all of, like my parents were, Monty Python, my parents were obsessed with comedy. So those tend to be uh, things I rewatch and I rewatch a lot of sitcoms. I am one of those people who will watch a show for the millionth time and I watch it to see what I will notice. It, for me as a writer, I'm like, 
what's going to land differently for me this time? Or what did I miss the last go around? Or how does this character land different for me, differently for me now than it did on the last rewatch? Like I, I think everybody rewatched Friends this year after the reunion. And five years ago when I watched Friends, I was like, I was like, Ross is the worst, like he's the most terrible character in history. And this time I was like, all right, hold on a second. Actually, maybe I have to write an article. I can make a case for Ross. He's not as bad as they make him out to be. I can make a case. Are you writing an article about Ross? <laughs> no, I'm not actually. I have, some notes. I have some things I've thought about that I'm like, wait a second. This man goes through an intense series of traumas, like, and his friends are just sort of like, meh, divorces. And I'm like, wait, wait, like he, his wife, like, left him and yeah he has a little bit of a breakdown and everybody acts like he's crazy instead of supporting him and that last bit at the end like the first time I watched it I was like she should have just gone to Paris leave him and <laughs> this time I'm older and I was like wait a second they have a child together that they're co-parenting and she's gonna like pull this child away from her father who's very involved like I was like oh well that's messy Rachel <laughs> so this is not what you were asking, but I love to read. I am like a chronic rewatcher because it makes you think about how everyone in your audience is at a different age and at a different place in life. And so it makes you think about how what you're writing might land for different people. And like, and it's not about trying to make all of them happy, but it is about trying to capture the like complexity of, of the human experience and how things will be received and how you want entertainment to push them along their journey. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So we usually, we rewatch a lot of things yeah. also, but I feel like we do it as sort of like a comfort thing. Like, cause we already know like how it's going to turn out, you know? Um, but you sit, so you rewatch to find something different in it every time. For the most part. I mean, I definitely also fall asleep to new girl most nights <laughs> and that's, you know, purely for the comfort of uh, hanging out with my fictional best friends. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I even, I have this bad habit of watching um, things that people say are badly written because I want to know why. And oh. I think that that's fun to do. Huh. Uh, so okay. even, and I, I won't say that this is badly written, but things that are written off as sort of like, oh, that's teen drama or like, oh, this doesn't work. Or like the Dawson crying meme. Like I would, I would, I love to go back and watch those things and be like, oh, I see. Okay. It's interesting. Like I rewatched Dawson's Creek like five years ago and was like, this is fascinating because they clearly wanted Dawson and Joey to end up together. And then they could not stop the chemistry between these two actors, between Joshua Jackson and Katie Holmes. And you're like, what do you do if you're a writer and you have this whole vision for how a show's going to go and your two lead actors are like, or these, this side character in this, your lead actress have this like unstoppable chemistry. You have to redo the whole thing. So at, at heart, are you team Dawson then? Is that what you're saying? No. Is that what you're saying? Pacey all day, baby. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Pacey forever. Glad we settled that. Important. So we we have this little thing, like proud plug, like what you're working on. You've mentioned it a few times that you are working on a script. We're very excited to know if we're going to have some maybe new Christmas movies coming from you. It's a new, it's a new Christmas movie. I can't say anything yet, uh, but, and I don't know if it's going to come out this year or next year, okay. but we're in the process on that one. And then I guess other proud plugs is I'm working on a book, but I haven't, but that's still like very much in the, in the works, but that's always been sort of the weird balances that I get to write about love and Christmas and puppies um, in one part of my life. And then write about, you know, I do these Ted talks and um, you know, and all these, this public speaking about trauma and, you know, writing about that in the other part of my life so at some point look out for a very dark non-hallmark book 
<laughs> well, you did a little acting love to the rescue. Do you think you would be interested in ever doing any more acting? I think it would be fun to do like smaller characters um, is always fun. And it's, I love being on set so much that I'm like, if you want me to go get batteries for the camera, I'll go get batteries for the camera. Like I just love being in the magic of that environment. I do a lot of public speaking or I did in pre-COVID times and now it's starting to ramp up again. And there is something fun about getting to, like that format is very intriguing because it marries the two. I get to be on stage and I get to, you're feeding off of an audience's reaction in real time, which is great. And it is the, its own weird art form where um, when you're, this is not what you asked about, but I think it's <laughs> fun. Like like I, I gave a talk about um, forgiving the kid who killed my mother and brother. And there are points in that talk where you get teary-eyed, but it's not because you're actually placing yourself back in the moment. I, that was something about acting that sometimes was hard for me, was being really present in the moment of what's happening to this character. Uh, but on stage, always feeding off of the energy of the audience. And so there were times I would tear up and it was because... I am holding space for all these people who are hearing this traumatic thing or experiencing this first thing, this thing for the first time. And that energy, it's not that it's overwhelming for you, uh, you're holding it for them and empathizing with them, even though you're telling them a story about yourself, which is very strange and complicated, but, uh, but it's this very cool craft. And so I love doing that. I could totally see myself doing small parts like Greg the intern, um, but I don't know that I would, I mean, the talent that it takes and the craft that it takes to be a film actor, like when I watch what Nikki Dolch does and how much goes into it, and I, mean, I would have to take another like two decades to, to I just am so humbled and in awe of what people are able to do and to be totally present in their bodies, become another person, but also still bring their specific individuality to that character that isn't them. It's magic. Like it's just, a, it's magic and I'm not a magician. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing what Nikki does. She is definitely a favorite of ours. Like the way she conveys emotion is just like you said, magic. Yeah. And, and Michael Grady, like I will never be that charming. I'm not that charming in my day-to-day -day life, but man, he just like, can like blink at someone and you're like, wow, what a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like he is that guy. I mean, you see him on TV, like he is that guy. He is. He is the nicest. My favorite moment from being on set at Love to the Rescue was, and it's the first, you have to understand, it's the first movie I've ever written. Like I didn't even have screenplay sitting in a drawer somewhere. And he like comes up to me and we're about to film the scene where they kiss. And I'm in the background of that scene. And he just like claps me on the back and he's like, isn't it amazing? You just like, you made up all these characters in your head and then you put them on a page. And now we're here with all these lights and cameras and we did it. We like filmed these movie, movie, all these characters are out in the world and all these people are going to know them now. And I was like, yeah. And then I was like, yeah. And like started crying. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, oh you Michael Brady. <laughs> At first I was like, yeah, it sounded like the most simple thing, but he has so much warmth and heart that immediately I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's fine. You're right, Michael Brady. So is that, I was wondering if, if that's like a stipulation now that you have with Hallmark that Michael Brady has to be in like all of your movies? <laughs> wish. I wish I could. I actually just don't have any control over casting. Otherwise you'd see like my grandfather as Santa. <laughs> in like every movie. Um, I wish that I had that kind of input. Um, no, in fact, like most of the projects that I've 
done in the past two years have already had lead actors attached to them or lead actresses attached to them. It's been a lot of like, like with If I Only Had Christmas, obviously Candace, it was her baby. Um, and with the one I'm doing now, like actress was already attached and I adore her. So that's very exciting. Um, but it was, uh, but you know, I wish it's not as if I go in and I'm like, I will work with these people only as much as that would be really fun. But it is the kind of relationship where if I made anything else and I have any say, you know, the people that you work with become a family and you're like, can we sneak them into this? Hmm? Or maybe think about them. You're like, oh, this part does sound like Nikki DeLoach. Hmm. Who else could we possibly cast? Maybe Michael Rady. Doesn't this part sound, you're right, it does sound alarmingly like Michael Rady. <laughs> I mean, thank you so much for for coming and talking with us. We were so excited. I mean, when we did that little Instagram question, they were like, who would you want to talk to? Like, I've been thinking about you for a while now. And I was like, well, I don't know if she has anything coming out soon, but I was like, you know what? I just want to talk to her. Let's just talk to her. <laughs> I'm always down. I will, I like love the podcast. I love the way that you guys approach this. I mean, Thank it's you. just the technical appreciation and also the story appreciation. And like I said, you guys are, I think it's alarming sometimes. <laughs> I'm listening to them, so I'm like, who leaked? Like who talked? <laughs> We're not supposed to do this. So we're on the right path. I think we're doing. Yeah, I just good to know. It's been. I was like honored that I would even be the person that came to mind when you're like anybody. You know, surely there's got to be a '90s child star who's in these now who would be like way more exciting to talk to than me. Well, I mean, like I said, there's just something about the movies that you're attached to, and I'm not sure what it is. I think I have a greater understanding of it now than I did before, but. In, they are so rewatchable. Like, so thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. And thank you for appreciating this is, it's funny, like, and I, anybody who's a Hallmark fan, I think understands this. There's a huge swath of people out there who don't appreciate these movies and yeah. who don't, you know, or it's, it's funny and fun to hate on them. And I, everybody sends me every TikTok where people think they can pitch a Hallmark movie and everybody sends me every, you know, Instagram reel and every article. And although I will say that I absolutely am obsessed with Keaton Patty's, I taught a robot how to make a Hallmark movie. That's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But it's, it, it's nice that like, to me, this sounds terrible, but it is this sort of built-in misogyny. It's this thing about, you know, nobody would say that about an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or a like um like an action movie or you know uh, it's not like I didn't watch Jungle Cruise with The Rock and know exactly what was going to happen every single beat we know what's going to happen in every blow them blow them up shoot them up movie but nobody criticizes criticizes those as stupid movies you know or just like or it's silly or like you know there's something about romance that people um they don't think it's the same craft and they're much quicker to point out the formulaic and so I really appreciate just like the attention to detail that you guys bring to every aspect of this. I think it's important. You're actually fighting something that's more insidious than it maybe even seems on the surface, you know, by re-educating people around that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I've never yeah. even thought about like the hidden misogyny of that. You're absolutely right. No, of course. I, you know, I feel bad for all these women. They're like, oh, they like Hallmark movies because they're silly and cheesy and they know what's going to happen. Maybe, but you also know what's going to happen when somebody says they're going to, you know, they're going to kill the president. Like, you know, they're yeah. not going to. You know what I mean? We know, we know what's going to happen in a Jason Bourne movie. And that doesn't make Jason Bourne movies any worse for the wear, you know? Yeah. So I think it gets a bad rap in that sense. But, you know, I think anything that's soft and 
nice. And, and I, there's something about these movies where people, every character, this is a Hallmark rule. People can't be jerks in Hallmark movies. Nobody is allowed to be mean because they're mean. Uh, everybody has to be nice and they have to have the best of intentions. You really only can have conflict that's uh, stirred out of miscommunication or misunderstanding. And that in and of itself, if I think if you're like that whole what goes in go out thing, if you're constantly populating your world with movies and people who treat each other with kindness and respect, then you do start to treat other people that way. I don't think that entertainment, so I don't know that we always, I, I don't think all entertainment has to be aspirational, but I think aspirational content has its place and it's really important. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. We could not agree more. But no, thank you again. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, and we really do look forward to your, your next project. Thank you so much. I loved every second of it. I love you guys in the podcast so much. Like this was so much fun. You guys just have the best questions too. It's fun to actually like come on and talk about craft. Well, have a great weekend and we hope to hear from you soon. Definitely. You guys yes. too.